Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. This sermon was preached many years ago by the late Albert Barr. It's entitled, Walking in the Light. I know you will enjoy this wonderful message. Keep passing it on, keep passing it on, keep passing it on and on. Keep passing it on, keep passing it on, keep passing it on. Heavenly Father, would you enlighten our minds and hearts this morning by your spirit from your word. And we'll praise you in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Now there are a number of truths just in these two verses that we could preach on, but I'd like to note two of them that we'll try to touch on this morning. The first is that God is light. And the second, that walking in that light brings fellowship and cleansing. The first has to do with the nature of God in heaven, and the second with the nurture of God in the heart. The first is solemnly profound. The second is seriously pertinent. God is light. Now what does that mean? What does the Bible mean when it says God is light? Maybe the best place to start would be to note what it doesn't say. For one thing, it does not say light is God. That is, you and I are not sun worshipers. We are not pantheists. We do not believe that God is in the trees and God is in the stars and God is in the brook. Though we do believe that anyone with an enlightened heart and mind sees the handiwork of God when they see these things. Also note that it does not say that God is like light. That is, this is not a type, nor a symbol, nor an allegory. This is a statement of truth, young people. The Bible says that God is light, just like it says God is love or God is truth. So what does it mean when the Bible says God is light? Now, I guess to answer that, we would need a definition of light. But what kind of a definition you get on light will depend on who you ask. If you were to ask an educator what is light, they might say, well, light is truth. That is, uh, knowledge is light. And that's true. I'm sure we're aware that uh, any kind of knowledge that you receive is enlightening. We talk about a period of history nearly a thousand years when man's mind had to a great extent stagnated, no great discoveries or adventures or explorations, and we call it, among other things, the Dark Ages. During that time of Renaissance when 
man's mind was opening up and uh, rekindling, among other things, at least in one area of that rediscovery, we call it the enlightenment. And I think it is certainly true that uh, light is knowledge and light is discovery, and we'll look at that. But if you were to ask a physicist what is light, he would come up with a different definition. He would say, well, light is a narrow little part of the a little band within the electromagnetic spectrum. Light is a phenomenon having properties of both matter and energy. It has waveforms, and yet uh, it has zero rest mass, and it is a photon of energy, and he would go through and name a bunch of things like this. And while I think that that also is not precisely what the scripture is talking about, that we could note that God is the source of all of that physical phenomenon that we see and call physical light that we can see with our eyes. And yet it's rather obvious that that could not be precisely what the scripture is referring to when it tells us that God is light. So what does the Bible mean when the Bible says God is light? Well, I think as is usually the case, the Bible is its own best commentary. And if you were to look at Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 13, I think we would find the Bible definition of light. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. So anything that allows us to see truth is light. And so what the Bible, I believe, is teaching is that God is the source of all truth. And I think that is intellectual, physical, and spiritual. I believe with all of my heart that if you're going to really know anything, you have to know it because God allows us to know it and helps us to know it. And there's hardly anything more despicable than an educated fool and hardly anything more dangerous. Someone who's had their brain filled full of facts and still has no real enlightenment, no real wisdom. You understand, young people, that when the Bible talks about wisdom, it has absolutely nothing to do with IQ or education. The Bible knows no such thing as a wicked wise man. And I've lived long enough to know that is true. People don't fool me anymore with their big words and their fancy fancy orations and their long string of degrees, and I certainly believe in education, but I, I have said under many an educated fool. And I told you yesterday in my testimony that I started off, I have a stack of report cards that high that tell you that I am mentally retarded. And I don't mean that you would, you would kind of uh, construe that, I mean it's written in, this little boy is mentally retarded. He cannot learn. So I want you to keep that in mind because when I finally graduated from high school at the age of 21, I decided I never wanted to see the inside of a school again. But after a few years, God, as it were, put his thumb in my back and told me he wanted me to go back to school. And I said, Lord, I don't want to go back to school. I was doing good to ever get out in the first place. But the Lord kept saying he wanted me to go. And he wanted me to major in the life sciences. And I said, Lord, among other things, if I go back to school and I major in the life sciences, they're going to teach me evolution. 
And there must be a lot of good evidence for evolution because everybody believes it. And if I go into the classroom and they bring out facts that support evolution, I cannot be like the proverbial ostrich and stick my head in the sand and pretend I don't hear it. I've got to face facts. If I cannot be true to myself, then I cannot be true. And yet my whole life will fall apart because I am, I've made my choices, I've made my decisions over the years on the conviction that the, the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative Word of God. Now, if you'll stop and think, I was showing my own lack of faith. I thought the Bible was vulnerable to modern education. But God said, go back. And so I applied. I didn't know if they'd let me in after my dismal, mentally retarded high school. I noticed on the application they had this great big thing. They said, have you been out of school for more than a year? Write in what you've been doing in the meantime. I guess they wanted a long oration. They left a lot of space. I wrote, growing up. <laughs> And it must have worked, for they took me in on probation. I remember I went into the, my very first science class, just a general biology class. The professor came in. I already felt like a speckled bird. I was older than the other students. He sat down, and he began to just run through the introductions for evolution. Now, this man had a degree. This man had a high IQ. But he began to throw out the evidences for evolution, and he'd pull down these charts. He'd pull down a chart that had the various strata, you know, with the different fossils. And I remember I saw that same chart when I was in high school, and my teacher said, Now, we know that this particular fossil is 500 million years old. And dumb me, I said, Teacher, yes? How do we know that those fossils are 500 million years old? And she said, stupid, because they are found in 500 million year old rock. I'm not making this up, young people. I'm telling you the truth. Teacher? Yes. How do we know that the rock is 500 million years old? Stupid because 500 million year old fossils are found in it. <laughs> you think I'm making that up. I'm telling you the truth and they call that education. And I'm stupid. I'm retarded. And now I go out to college and this guy begins to pull down all these charts and he's got all of the evolutionary history of various animals. You know, they've got the horse there. Way down at the bottom is the little Eohippus dawn horse and way up at the top is the modern Equus, and they've filled it all in. They pulled down these charts of vestigial organs, organs that used to do something when you crawled around on all fours and ate grass, but now that you've evolved into an upright position, they no longer do anything. They pulled down a chart of the embryos, the embryonic development of creatures, you know. And they'd have the embryonic stages of, the, of a fish and of a chicken and of a monkey and of a man. And he said, now you'll notice that all of these start as one cell floating in a watery environment. That's because in your evolutionary ancestry, you at one time were one cell floating around in the sea. He said, down here you'll notice that the human embryo has gill slits. That's because in your embryonic development, 
you are going back to a stage in your evolution when you were an osteoichthys, a bony fish. And he said, down here you'll notice that the human embryo has a tail. And that's because you share an ancestry with the apes, which is stupid on the top of it. Apes don't have tails. <laughs> Monkeys have tails. Apes don't have tails. And so, being a little retarded, I raised my hand. And this man, who didn't know me from Adam, he said, yes, sir. And I said, I had been reading about this. I was amazed. I didn't know they taught this in school anymore. I thought it had been so thoroughly discredited that I did not expect to meet it in a modern college. And so I used the terminology that I had used, had seen when I had been reading. And so I said, are you saying that embryology recapitulates paleontology? And as soon as I said that, they don't use that terminology anymore, he knew exactly what I was. He came around and he sat down on the front of his desk and he glared at me. And I could feel my ears turning red. All of the other students were looking at this speckled bird. And finally he said, uh, you're a creationist, aren't you? And I said, yes, sir. He said, you know, I don't know anything to call you but ignorant. Now, he didn't know the half of it. Of course I was ignorant. Why do you think I came to school? Because I knew everything? We're all ignorant. We're just ignorant in different ways. You don't think I'm ignorant? Ask me to bake a cake. You'll find out in a hurry how ignorant I am. But I knew that what the man was actually saying to that class was, anyone who believes the Bible is ignorant. And I went home and got down on my knees and said, God, I told you this was going to happen and you wouldn't listen to me. <laughs> and now the man's called me ignorant and he doesn't even know, he doesn't know my record. I'm not ignorant, I'm mentally retarded. And I am not up to this. And I know it. And I also know that what the man is really saying is that anyone who believes the Bible is ignorant. I can handle being called ignorant. That's kind compared to some things I've been called. But I know that what he's actually saying is that anyone who believes the Bible is ignorant. And Lord, I already know before I ever begin that I am not up to this. But you called me and you placed me there. And I'm not asking you to drill a hole in my head and pour in anything. Don't bother to ask him to do that, students. He won't. And I know that I'm responsible to study and to work and do my best, but I already know that my best will not be good enough. And so I'm asking you, Lord, would you help me if I do my best? Would you make up the difference? And would you enable me to demonstrate to this professor and to these students that you do not have to be an ignoramus to believe the Bible? I had that professor for four years in various subjects. I had anatomy and biochemistry and botany under him. I had zoology under him. And when we came down, I'd taken my last exam under that professor, and I was slipping out of the classroom, and he slipped out into the hall, and I wish you people knew me better, for I, wouldn't, I know that this will have a certain cast of braggadociousness if you knew my heart, no one here knows better than I how inappropriate that would be. But he said uh, he wanted to apologize, and he wasn't really man enough to quite do it. 
He said, now, uh, Mr. Barr, he said, I know that we don't agree on a lot of things. <laughs> that was an understatement. We'd had a running feud going for four years. We'd gone round and round and round. But he said, uh, said, I want you to know that we're glad to have people like you in our school. And he said, I thought you might like to know that you have the highest grade point average of any student I have ever taught. And I said, thank you, Jesus. You don't have to be an ignoramus to believe the Bible. In fact, after four years of sitting under this educated professor, I decided that it might help to be an ignoramus to believe some of the stuff they taught me in school. I paid for a good education and they taught me foolishness and they taught me lies and they taught me emptiness and you young people, I hope today you appreciate your Christian education. If you've got half cents in one eye, ten years from now you'll appreciate it even more. When your peers are falling apart trying to build a life on emptiness with no ultimate values, no purpose, no significance, no meaning, a rope of sand to try to build a life on. And in the crises of life, it doesn't work, and they shoot themselves, and they fall apart. Thank God for an education from God's point of view. You have nothing to apologize for, for a Christian education. The foolishness, those charts that they showed me, vestigial organs. I've got old textbooks. I collect textbooks. I've got old textbooks back from early in the century. It's got, I remember one of them's got a huge chart of vestigial organs, organs that used to do something, but they don't do anything anymore. Great big chart. One of them on there is the, is the pituitary gland. <laughs> Today it's called the master gland of the body. Simply because we don't know what something does doesn't mean it doesn't do anything. He said, you know, these are organs that used to do something, but they, you know, they, they said your appendix is one of them. Said it doesn't do anything. In fact, it causes a lot of people trouble. And if they open up your abdomen for any reason, they just take that out while they're in there. They don't do that anymore, by the way. It does do something. So you can live without it. I could live without my right arm. I'd prefer not to. <laughs> so it causes a lot of people trouble. I guess more people have sore throats than anything else. I'd prefer they didn't remove mine. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't prove anything. And I listened to this stupidity called modern education, and I said, thank God for the light of God that enlightens the mind. This chart that they gave me of the evolutionary development of a human being, do you know why you start life as one cell? Not because of some idiotic theory of evolution but because there was a time when you were no cells and today you are billions of cells and I know of no way to get to zero from zero to one billion without passing one <laughs> gill slits you don't ever have gill slits human beings do not have gill slits ever as embryos or anything else those are the pharyngeal arches they will become your palate part of your jaw he had to know those were not gill slits. They taught me lies. And the human being never has a tail. That's not a tail. That's the end of his spine. He didn't have any legs yet. It had to end somewhere. <laughs> and they called that education. And I'm retarded. I remember I was 
I spent a couple years in that school and I was taking, I was taking anatomy. And we had started off dissecting under the microscope. We'd worked our way up through all the various critters and we would eventually go through some more, but we had arrived at the frog. We were dissecting the frog and they had these huge frogs shipped in from Africa. They were monsters. They would have threatened a chihuahua. They were huge. <laughs> they were nice to dissect. The veins and the arteries and the lymphatic system had all been injected with colored vinyl and they were nice to, to dissect. Now the way this thing worked, a very large class, many, many students, and you would come through a little, little hallway there and a lab helper would reach in with a rubber glove into a 55-gallon drum of formaldehyde. He would pull out a frog, plop it on your dissecting tray. You would take it in and sit down there. You had a lab partner, two to a frog. The professor would stand up front with a great big chart of the frog and he would drone on, you know, now make a lenticular cut from the dorsal nares. And you're sitting there. Now, I like biology. I like anatomy. But we'd been doing this for months and I was a little bored. That particular night, my lab partner didn't show, so I had this frog to myself. <laughs> I was sitting there, bored, professor droning on. I'm half drunk on formaldehyde fumes. I'm listening. I had my magic markers here because you're supposed to be making charts and notes of what you see. And I just absentmindedly took my green magic marker and I touched it to the liver that, that formaldehyde-soaked liver of that frog. And when I did, it just burst out in little starbursts of green. It was so pretty. And so I, hmm, and I began to make little polka dots. And it was lovely. And I was chewing gum, which was permitted in that school. So I took out my gum and I molded it into a lobe and I picked up one lobe of that liver and I stuck it in there and I tapped it down and I was customizing this frog. And it really, it's amazing how fast time goes when you're having a good time. And suddenly this class was over and you go in and you throw your frog back into the 55 gallon drum. When you come through the next time, you'll get a different frog probably, but it doesn't matter. Everybody's frog is at the same stage of dissection. So a few days later, we come back through, we get her frog, I'm back in there, my lab partner's back, the professor's up there droning on, and a student way over here raises his hand, hey prof, what's this stuff? <laughs> stuff, boy, stuff, you're in a college anatomy class, no such thing as stuff, everything got a name, boy. He goes back there and he, hmm, <laughs> hey, what is this stuff here? He says, hey. Finally, he straightened up, he said, hey, what? Stop, every student, stop, stop. <clears throat> Said, uh, we have here a very rare opportunity to study a pathogenic condition in the liver of a frog. <laughs> gather in, gather in. Said, this frog has a tumor. <laughs> he said, uh, you will notice the large and ugly protruding growth from the liver there the ugly green discoloration of the diseased liver. And I look down and there's my Wrigley Spearmint. And I go, <laughs> And I thought, I'm retarded. <laughs> and he doesn't know tumor from chewing gum. And I'm retarded. People I paid for an education and they taught me lies and they taught me foolishness. I'm long past the stage when I'm impressed with credentials. 
True truth comes from God, young people. And to be enlightened in your mind ultimately comes from God. I also believe that that physical phenomenon that we call light that flows from the sun and the stars and from artificial lighting and that we see with our eyes and that communicates truth to us and allows us to understand and see our world also comes from God. Now, I want to be real careful here. I do not want to get into some pantheistic or anthropomorphic concept. By that, I mean simply that God created that light in the first place. Now, that helps me to understand a lot of things. God is light. Did you ever notice in the Bible that on day one of creation, God created light? Yet he didn't get around to creating the sun, moon, and stars until day four. By then, he had plants and trees growing. You wonder, how could that be? Easy. God was there, and where God is, there's light. You don't have to have a sun or a moon or stars. You have to have God. In fact, you and I who are Christians, we're planning on spending eternity in a city where they have no need of the sun or the moon because the Lamb of God is the light thereof. Now, I believe that God created physical light, and if I can say this, again, without being anthropomorphic, I believe that God left, as it were, his fingerprint upon his creation so that you and I can understand some things about God from his creation. Now, that doesn't mean that going out like David said, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork, Day unto day uttereth speech, night unto night showeth neither is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. I don't mean that going out and looking at the stars is the equivalent of a college education in theology. But I do believe that as we discover things about God's creation, it'll be consistent with the God who is revealed in the Bible. And we understand things, we perceive things. I had the privilege of taking astronomy at Clemson University under a professor who was a Christian, probably the only Christian professor I had in my secular education. And Dr. Fries and I, long after the other students would be gone and the class would be over, he and I, as mutual brothers in the Lord, would stay there during the night and manipulate those fantastic university, and we would scan the heavens, and we would talk about one who by his spirit garnished the heavens like a lady beautifying a salad, he garnished the heavens, and we would see God. And you know, until fairly recently, we knew more about the distant stars than we did about the relatively near planet, because the stars radiate light where the planets only reflect them. And we could take a spectroscope and put it on the telescope, and break the light coming from that star up into a spectrum and by black line spectrum and Doppler shift and such like, we could tell how far away that star was, how hot it was, what its mass was, what the elements that made it up were. And we knew far less than that about the near planets because they gave off light. And truth is communicated through light. And God is the source of all truth. And so as you discover things about God, you'll find them consistent with, or as you discover things about science, you'll find it consistent with the God who created it. For example, you and I live in a universe. 
It's not a multiverse, it's a universe. One verse. <laughs> and yet, it is just naturally, you can pick up any textbook on physics, it doesn't have to have anything to do with Bible, it can be written by an atheist, and they will tell you that the universe divides naturally into three parts. All of the universe, everything we can know about, is either matter energy, which we now know are different forms of the same thing, or time, or space. All of those divide naturally into three parts. All of energy is either kinetic energy, potential energy, or atomic energy. All of time is either past, present, or future. All of space is three-dimensional. We do not know of any other distance, any other direction. Front, back, up, down, left, right, that's all we can conceive of. Why do you reckon the yuna verse divides into three? Because it was created by one God who is three in one. And over and over again, once you have your heart and mind opened and can see from God's point of view, you will be thrilled by the world out there that the, that the evolutionist and the humanist and the atheist and the, the materialist never sees. And it strikes me as very, very sad that so many people march through this world and never smell the flowers and never hear the music and never see God. How empty their life must be. But I believe that as God created this physical phenomenon called physical light and left his fingerprints, as it were, upon that, that we will find that the physical phenomenon of light has many of the aspects in a physical realm that are true in the spiritual realm of the nature and attributes of our God, who is himself light. Now let me explain what I mean by that. Let me maybe do that by illustration. For example, light appears to be eternal. Now the phenomenon called physical light is not eternal, as I understand the scriptures. It is not limitless, though we cannot conceive of any one of those. Can you conceive of a point at which all of the universe ends? I don't mean that beyond that is empty space. I mean beyond that isn't even space, isn't even time. No, you can't conceive of that, neither can I. On the other hand, if you try and say, well, let's try to, let's try to conceive of a limited time and space, you can't conceive of that either. They are all beyond us. Did you know... I've just learned that if you stick with the book, you'll always be right. Now make sure you know what the book says. I was reading a book sometime back called The Key to the Universe. It's by a guy named Calder. He is a fellow at the Fermi Institute and studying the very latest in subatomic physics. And this is what the book was on. And I'm not trying to wow anybody. I didn't understand a third of what the book said. I was simply trying to stay up. It was interesting, back when I went to school, they told me that everything was made up of atoms. Then they decided that atoms were made up of a nucleus of protons and neutrons with electrons going around it. By the time I got to college, they were talking about, no, it goes smaller than that. You've got, you know, neutrinos and, and uh, you've got uh, positrons and morons and, well, something like that. Now I pick up this book and they're talking about quarks and charmed quarks and colored quarks. And the natural question is, where will it ever end? 
Well, it's interesting when I was reading that book that this professor, this uh, scientist, one of the brilliant minds in subatomic physics today, and he said, when will it end? When will we actually have found the basic unit of all of matter, of all of creation? And I don't know that he's right, but he said we're beginning to receive signals that we have indeed arrived at the end of the line and we have found the basic building block of the universe. He said we believe it is the charmed quark. Now they're talking about a phenomenon now that even goes beyond that, but when the book was written, it was the charmed quark. And he said one of the properties of the charmed quark is that it is inherently invisible. Now, he did not mean by that that it's too small to see. Any of these things are too small to see with the most powerful of instruments. He was saying it must forever remain invisible. It can never be directly detected by anything man will ever create. That's, part of the, that's what we theorize is one of its properties. It must forever be inherently undetectable. The only way we can even in any way theorize it and study it is by its effect on other things, but it can never be directly detected. He said, the fundamental building block of the universe is inherently invisible. In a way, invisible meaning in a way way beyond what we normally mean by that. And I thought of one who 2,000 years ago wrote, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed. So that the things which are seen are not made of things which do appear, could I paraphrase that? By faith we know that everything you can see is made up of a particle that is fundamentally invisible. <laughs> and I thought if we'll just hang in there, we'll eventually come around to the Bible. <laughs> the Bible's right. But God is light. Now, I said that light appears to be eternal. By that I mean you can look out with the most powerful telescopes, and today we can look out supposedly many billions of light years, and we still see light. Well, that's because the God who created light is eternal. There's an interesting verse of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 15, Thus saith the high and lofty one who inhabiteth eternity. And I read that and I said, that doesn't make any sense. You can't inhabit eternity. The words don't go together. If I wanted to say that God fills all of space, I would say he inhabited infinity. If I wanted to say that he is eternal and lives forever and ever, I would say that he is eternal or he exists forever, but inhabit eternity. But you know, it's interesting that according to modern theories of relativity, if we could take a particle that God created and we could accelerate it to the speed of light, and at this point it's theoretically impossible to do that, but as we near the speed of light, time slows down for a particle and its mass increases. And the theory says that if you project the curves that at the speed of light, a piece of matter traveling at that speed would fill all of space, its mass would be infinite, and time would stand still. <laughs> and I said, thus saith the high and lofty one who inhabiteth eternity, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When he came to earth and walked among men and the Pharisees mocked him. He said, uh, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And they said, You're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And he said, Before Abraham was, I am. 
<laughs> Not was, but am. The same yesterday, today, and forever fills all the space. Is omnipresent. Now, you know, that helps me to understand some things. Did you ever wonder how God is going to call back the deeds done in the body and we have to give an account for them? For the Bible says we will. You know, as we look out through the telescope, well, you wouldn't even need a telescope, but the light you see coming in through the doors out there from the sun. The sun is 93 million miles away, takes a little over six minutes for light to get here, traveling at 186,000 miles per second. That means that if the sun were to wink out right now, we wouldn't know it for six more minutes. We're looking back in time, six minutes. If you were to go out under a telescope and look at the nearest star, it's Alpha Centura. Actually, Alpha Proxima is the nearest star, but we can't see that one. It's blurred by Alpha Centura. So we look at Alpha Centura. Alpha Centura is four and a half light years from the Earth. That means it takes light four and a half years to get here. Now, to try to make this plain, say that there was... Now, you understand I'm making this up, but let's pretend that there's a planet in orbit around Alpha Centura and that there's a race of little green men on that planet and they have reached the point of technological development that they've built a telescope they can look at Westfield, Indiana and they can see people. <laughs> they wouldn't see us here today. They would see if they went out tonight and looked this way, they would see what took place here four and a half years ago. They're looking back in time. It'll be no problem for the God who is light. I don't know how he's going to do it, but certainly it would be no problem. For everything you and I do in the flesh, even in what we think is the darkest of night, is recorded in light. And it's traveling out through the universe somewhere, and the God who is light will have no problem bringing it back for us to give an account of. I used to go often to, whenever I had the chance to hear the sermons from science that was put on by Moody Bible Institute, back in the days when I was a boy and dinosaurs roamed the earth, the man who was giving it was a man named Dr. Speak. And so I would go to hear Dr. Speak, and among other things, he had a big screen. And he had a special light that would shine on that screen, and he would stand between the light and the screen, and he would cast a very vivid shadow of himself on the screen. He would stand there for a few seconds, and then he would step away, and his shadow would remain on that special screen, captured. But as you watched, it would slowly fade away. He said the half-life of that image is so many seconds. That meant that in intensity it would decay, let's say it was three seconds, that in three seconds it would only be half as intense as it had been at the beginning. Three seconds later it would only be one-fourth as intense, half of the half. And then it would be one-eighth and one-sixteenth and one-thirty-seconds and one-sixty-fourth and one-one-hundred-and-twenty-eighth and one-five-hundred-and-twelve and one-thousand-two-hundred and so on, okay? 1,024, not 200. If you stop and think about that, every time he's ever done it, it's never gone. It's always on the screen. If you cut something in half, you always have half left. Every time that he's been there, it's on that screen. Though it may not be visible to our eyes any longer, it is there. It is recorded. Our omnipotent God, who is light, will have no problem bringing back the deeds done in the body for you and I to give an account of. But not only is light does it give the appearance of being eternal, but light is a universal constant. Now, we live in a day of relativity. Einstein came up with relativity and then special relativity. 
And that theory, and I know of no reason why a Christian cannot accept that as a valid theory in the realm of physics, experiments that have been done in satellites and such like indicate that it's valid. And it says that everything is relative in the physical realm. You can't really say that a minute is a minute. It just depends upon the relationship between the observer and the object. You can't really say that a foot is a foot or a pound is a pound. It all depends. But what has happened, man, in his desire to get rid of responsibility to God, has taken that which seems to be true in the realm of physics and he's applied it to morality. And he said everything is relative. Not really any right and wrong, just depends. Might be wrong to steal sometimes, but it might be all right under other circumstances. Maybe wrong to run off with somebody else's wife sometimes, but if you really love each other, maybe it's okay. Well, you know, the problem is, people, that what is true in the realm of physics is not necessarily true in the realm of the spirit. And the fact is that when Einstein came up with this theory, his theory is all math. And suddenly he realized, if I'm saying that nothing is constant, nothing is certain, everything is relative, then my theory doesn't mean anything. If two plus two can't be said to equal four, then my math doesn't mean anything. So I must find at least one constant that never changes, that is the same, to give my theory and my math authenticity. And so he came up with the famous equation that gave us atomic energy, E equals mc squared. Energy is equal to a mass times the square of a constant. The one constant in all of the universe that doesn't change. Do you know what the C stands for in E equals mc squared? The speed of light. The speed of light. The unchangeable light. And let me tell you something, people. Times do change. Times change dramatically, and they're changing faster and faster. And, and you young people will change with them in many ways. But there are some things that doesn't change, that do not change. And the book is one of them. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. The entrance of thy word giveth light. If any man speaks not according to the prophet, to the scriptures, it's because the light is not in him. The truth is not in him, the Bible says. And young people, there is something that doesn't change, and that's the light. God's word and you need to settle it in your heart that that will be the unchanging rule that that will be the unchanging anchor of your life I know every time you talk about that you know being unchanging and old-fashioned you've always got somebody that comes along and says okay okay brother Barr let's all start coming back to church in horse and buggies and we'll light our churches with kerosene lamps and we'll stupid it's not what we're talking about See, that shows we don't know the difference between science and nature. When I was a boy, my brother and I used to get to come home to Pennsylvania to, the, to my grandparents' house every year. And uh, we would go down into the woods behind the farm, and there was a creek, and on that creek some beaver had made their home, had built a dam and beaver lodges, and we would sit there and watch the beaver at work. And after we'd been there a day or two and they would get used to us, they would, uh, they would get quiet until we were quiet and then they would begin to go about their daily business and we would enjoy watching them. Do you know how a beaver builds a dam? Well, he takes those sharpened seizure teeth that God's given him and he chops down an aspen tree and he cuts it up in short lengths and takes off all the branches. He drags it down to the river. If it's too far, he'll dig a trench and float it down. 
floats it into the pond, dives down to the bottom, jams it into the mud, brings down rock and mud and pats it down with that flat tail God's given him and he builds a dam. If you were to go back a thousand years and watch a beaver build a dam a thousand years ago, do you know how he would build a dam a thousand years ago? He would take those sharpened seizure teeth that God's given him and he'd chop down an aspen tree and he'd cut it up in short lengths and peel off the branches and then he'd drag it down to the riverbed unless it was a long ways, in which case he'd build a, he'd dig a canal and float it down. Then he'd float it down and drive it into the mud at the bottom and he'd pack it down with rocks and mud and pat it down with that tail God's given him. You know why? Because beavers build dams by nature and nature doesn't change. But certainly we all know that the way a man would build a dam today would be drastically different than the way he would have built it a thousand years ago because men build dams by science, and science changes. And young people, one of the most important principles you'll ever learn is the difference between nature and science. So science comes along and it invents a new fabric that doesn't need ironing. And the women rejoice because now they can have permapressed clothes. And a Christian can take advantage of that and have clothing that now does not need pressed. And a hundred years or maybe ten years from now, maybe we'll all be wearing plastic suits. Because that's science, and science changes. But the clothing that we make from that fabric, a hundred years from now, if they're, if they're plastic or whatever they may be, will still have to meet God's requirements of modesty and utility and economy. Why? Because those deal with our nature and our nature doesn't change. And we need to know the difference. There are universal constants that do not change and the book has them. Now, light also can be radiated or reflected. The sun gives off its own light. The moon reflects the light. Somebody asked a little boy one time which he thought was most important, the sun or the moon. He said he figured the moon was because it shone at night when you needed it the most. <laughs> Heard about one little boy used to wonder where the sun went when it set. So he sat out on the porch one day and stepped and watched the sun go down and just decided he'd find out, so he just waited. And he waited and waited and waited and waited and waited. Finally, it dawned on him. Uh, I just wanted to know if anybody was listening. <laughs> it dawned on you. But you know, that's why Jesus could say, I am the light of the world, and then turn right around to his disciples. says that walking in the light brings fellowship and cleansing. You know, there's an idea brought in the land today that says that God gives you something when you're saved called eternal life. And he gives that to you. That's God's gift, eternal life. And God doesn't take back what he gives. He's not that kind of a God. And so even though you may later rebel and go back into sin, you still have this eternal life. That's a totally wrong concept of what eternal life even is. Eternal life is not some package that you tuck away in your heart. It is a condition that comes from being in the presence of the life giver. He who hath the Son hath life. 
And he who hath not the Son of God hath not life. It's a condition that comes from like a little plant in the light. We walk in the light and we grow and we prosper. I one time had a student named Molly Wiley. And Molly did a science fair project. She took a long box and she put a petition in the middle, effectively making it two boxes. Had a door in the front she could open. One long door opened both boxes. In one side, she put a little light bulb in the top and a timer to bring that light bulb on for so many hours a day and turn it off. In the other side, she put two lights, one in each corner of that side of the box and a timer that brought this light on for an hour and then switched to that one and then back again. And then into each side, she slid a little tray of African violets. She shut the door. Every day, she would open the door. She would water them equally, keep everything constant except for the light. I had recommended the science project and suggested it, I, I, uh, but I confess I was amazed myself at the results in just a few weeks. Those plants on the side that had only one light, they got all lined up and oriented with the light and they began to grow and they were healthy and green. But those plants on the other side where the light changed and switched back and forth, Many of them were dead. All of them were stunted. They were a pathetic-looking bunch of African violets. You know what happened? On the side with one constant light source, God has so designed that plant down in the, the stem of that plant is a catalyst called oxen. They are photosensitive and they migrate away from the light, but they accelerate the growth on this side of the stem. And so very slowly that little plant is pushed over and lines up with the light opens out its leaves and begins to bask in the light and to grow and prosper. But over on the other side, that little plant, the light is over there. And I know, by the way, that the plant doesn't have a mind. And I had a professor say that to me one time. Plants don't think. They don't know, you know, they don't have a mind. They don't think, now where's the light? I said, I know that. I said, a thermostat on the wall doesn't feel temperature like my skin does. It doesn't have a mind that thinks, well, it's a little cool in here. I think I'll turn the heat on. But the one who designed it had a mind and knew how to put it together so it would do the right thing. And God made this little plant with his wisdom and so it could line up. But on the side where over here is the light and the little plant begins the rather slow process of coming over and getting lined up with the light and suddenly click the lights over there. And so it begins to come back, and but long before it can arrive and light, click, it's over there. And so it begins to come back and get lined up, and click, the light's over there. And so it tried, and pretty soon the plant had the equivalent of a plant nervous breakdown. It never could get lined up with the light. And I've watched people do that, play around with the light, and trifle around with the light, and not walk in the light, and you watch them wither and die. Young people walk in the light. Purpose that you understand that God is light and walking in that light brings fellowship and cleansing. Walk in the light. Purpose now that you're going to walk in the light. To the best of my understanding, the Bible teaches two requirements to get to heaven. Ye must be born again and you must walk in the light. If you'll walk in the light, God will lead you into holiness. God will tell you how to go. But you must walk in the light. Learn to walk in the light. And what you'll have is people will come along and mock you when you try to walk in the light and be careful with God and give God the benefit of the doubt. Whatever happened to the holiness mindset of giving God the benefit, being careful before God, giving an option of something that's obviously right and something that might be right, we choose the obviously right. 
But you see, no matter where you stand, young people, it'll always be possible for somebody to come along and say, now what difference would an inch make? And as soon as you stop and think about it in that manner, you say, well, now what difference would an inch make? It sounds so legalistic, so narrow-minded to argue over an inch. You say, well, probably an inch wouldn't make any difference. Here's the problem. You know, way over here, young people, you've got what is obviously right. This is obviously good and pleasing to God. And way over here, there's that that is obviously wrong and out of the will of God. And admittedly, in between, it's often a gray area. And I don't know where you pass from one into the other. But I do know this. I can take and say, I'm going to stand here. This is where I'm going to stand. And somebody will come along and say, Brother Barr, <laughs> would you please tell me what, in, what difference an inch makes? And you say, well, really it does sound absurd to argue over an inch. I, I don't guess an inch would make any difference. So I'll stand here. Do you know what can immediately happen? <laughs> Brother Barr, you stand here yet. Would you please explain to me what is the difference between here and here? I don't guess much of any. Well, what about here and here? You know, we had a rule down at Hope Sound, and I refer to Hope Sound a lot because I taught there for 11 years. We had a rule at Hope Sound that said that boys couldn't have a beard. Now, we didn't say you couldn't go to heaven with a beard. We said you couldn't go to Hope Sound with a beer, okay? And I think, I think every institution has a right to set rules that have nothing to do with what, you know, we said to the boys in the high school, you got to wear blue pants. We didn't say you had to wear blue pants to go to heaven. We said you had to wear blue pants to go to the academy, okay? I mean, I'm a strong believer in the guy who pays for the hamburger gets to say who eats it. And I just believe that the institution has a right to tell you, you know, if, you, if they say you have to wear a beanie to come here, you've got to wear the beanie. And if you aren't willing to wear the beanie, go somewhere else. But anyhow, we had this rule that said no beard. Let's say that a boy comes in one day, and he's doing like my son. My son was secretly growing a beard for three months. And uh, <laughs> he, he comes in and he says, uh, Brother Barr, you notice anything different about me? And I said, No. He says, look closely. No. Finally, he gets up real close, and you discover that he has one long, lonesome hair. <laughs> one. And he says, Brother Barr, does this constitute a beard? And I say, man, I can't even see it. No, I don't guess that constitutes a beard, one hair. So he could say, two? Would two constitute a beard, Brother Barr? Nah, nah. Three? I don't know where it becomes a beard, but I know somewhere you keep that up, you eventually are breaking the rule. And you can do that anywhere, people. And what will happen, no matter what I'm saying is, young people, stand somewhere. Take your stand and say, look, I'm not saying this is the only place to stand. I'm not going to call anybody who stands here a fanatic or anybody who stands here a liberal, but don't bother to ask me to change because I know that if I don't drop anchor somewhere, I'll eventually drift over here till I will be into the obviously wrong. And so to keep that from happening, I choose to stand here. I'm not a fanatic. You aren't a liberal. You aren't a fanatic. But don't bother to ask me to move. And somewhere, young people, you've got to, And let me tell you, when you drop your anchor, 
While I'm not here to tell you exactly where to, don't believe it's my job to tell you exactly where to drop your anchor. God help you to drop it well away from the waterfall, well away from the danger zone. Stay over well into that which is pleasing to God. Here's how we know we have our petitions from him, young people, because we keep his commandments and do those things which are pleasing in his sight. And if all you settle for is the commandments, give me the chapter and verse, Brother Barr, that says thou shalt not smoke cigarettes, you'll be a liberal. And I mean that in the real sense of the word. But oh, if God can help us to be sensitive to the moving of spirit. Young people, I, I don't want to sound mystical, and yet I think there almost is a mystical element here. But as I've lived for the Lord, and I don't want to sound pious or unduly holy or anything, but over the years as I've walked with God, I've discovered little things about Jesus that are almost too holy to talk about and almost too subtle to put into words. But I've sensed that he loves little things, that he loves simplicity, that he loves humility, and it affects how I live, where I dress, how I dress, where I go, in little subtle ways that I could hardly describe, would not preach to others. But I, and listen, I'm long past the day when I think that my standards and my work save me. I know better. I know I'm not saved by my works. I didn't get saved by works. I don't stay saved by works. I don't ingratiate God to me by my works. But I must tell you that I love him so much that I want my works to please him. I want my life to bring honor and glory to him. I want to live so that he can walk beside me and give me that sweet fellowship and assurance that I long for. And that comes by walking carefully with our God. And God give you young people a heart to walk in the light, for light is a life giver. Could I toss out one more and we'll go to lunch? Light is a life, life indicator. You see, it's how you respond to light that tells whether life is in you or not. Living things respond to the light. Do you, I remember many years ago, uh, NASA was paying youngins all across the United States to catch lightning bugs. And what they were doing is they, you'd bring, they took millions and millions of lightning bugs, and they took that lightning bug juice, those lightning bug squeezings, and they distilled it down into a broth. Now you see there are three kinds of light primarily. There's incandescent light, which I don't happen to see one in here, but you know, the normal light of a home, the light bulb that's got a filament, probably tungsten, and electrons pass through it, heat it to the point that it incandesces and gives off light. And here you've got fluorescent lights, and you've got electrons traveling back and forth, excited in a tube, they strike a special fluorescent uh, coating that fluoresces and gives off photons of light, and you've got light. There's another kind of light, it's, it's called phosphorescent. It's the light of the lightning. And by the way, 1 John 1, 5, God is light, the word is phosphos. God is the living light. Could I take an aside here and tell you about the lightning bug convention? Did you know that all of the lightning bugs in Farmer Brown's Meadow had a convention? And among other things, they wrote up the following resolution. Whereas, each morning when the sun arises, by its great light, it eclipses ours, be it hereby resolved by this august assembly of lightning bugs, that the sun shall not rise in the morning. But it did anyhow. <laughs> and by the way, all these liberals telling us that Jesus isn't coming back, 
there are a bunch of lightning bugs telling the sun not to come up anymore. He's coming anyhow. <laughs> but they would take these lightning bugs, and after they gathered them, they put them into the Viking Martian lander spacecraft that were sent to Mars. They put them into something called the wolf trap. Now, they didn't plan on capturing wolves on Mars. It was named after the German scientist that invented the thing. But what happened is when these, when these Viking spacecraft landed on Mars, they shot out, a little charge went off, and shot out a little projectile with a long, sticky string behind it. It fell to the Martian surface, the string settled to the surface, and little bits of Martian soil clung to that string. Then it reeled it all back up in, and you had that sticky string with the Martian soil on it. And then it was very slowly, automatically lowered down into that vat of lightning bug juice. And the idea was that if there were any organic compounds in that soil, anything alive or that had ever been alive, that it would cause that lightning bug juice to glow, to fluoresce. And a photocell would pick up the light and radio the signal back to the Earth, there's been life on Mars. They didn't discover any, which very much disappointed them because they were teaching us in those days that life was no big deal, given some water and solar radiation, life just happened, and there was abundant evidence that there had been water in the past and so on. They didn't find any, and it disappointed them. Had they found any, it wouldn't bother me. It just means God created life on Mars. No big deal. <laughs> but the theory behind all of that was that there'll be a response in light where there's been life. And young people, not wanting to judge, but I can tell your spiritual health by how you respond to light. Do you embrace the light and flee to the light and cling to the light and thank God for the light? Or do you shy away from new truth and from opportunities to get new truth? Something seriously wrong if we do. Be lovers of the light. Walk as children of the light, as Paul said. And we will be in doing so in the image of our God, who is light. Let's go to lunch. I don't want to take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been passed on. I don't want to Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention. Featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. And pass on.